Well, one of my boys brought home his library book for the week, and he had chosen uh, the Guinness Book of World Records. They're still uh, making those, I guess. <laughs> so we're looking through all these categories of people who have attempted and succeeded at doing some pretty uh, amazing things, some crazy things, some downright disturbing things, uh, to be honest. And uh, one of those that we came across was a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick. On August 8th of 1950, at the age of 32, Chadwick entered the water to begin a, a swim. This would be no ordinary swim as she was attempting to swim across the English Channel from France to England. And she was successful, so much so that she completed the swim in 13 hours and 23 minutes, breaking the then, I guess, world women's record. Well, 10 years later, Chadwick attempted another swim, and this would be between the chilly ocean waters of Catalina Island and the coast of California. She swam through foggy weather and choppy seas. She was flanked by boats that were keeping watch for her for sharks or in case she got injured uh, or just tired and needed to come in. During that swim, her muscles began to cramp and her resolve weakened. And after about 15 hours, a thick fog had set in and Florence began to doubt her ability she told her mother, who was in one of the boats, that she didn't think she could make it, but her mother encouraged her not to give up, to keep swimming, and she swam for another hour. But every time she would look up, she was unable to see the coastline due to that fog that had set in, so she asked to be pulled into the boat. As she sat in the boat, she found that she had stopped swimming less than one mile from her destination. Later in a news conference, Chadwick said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Can I give you a promise to hold on to this morning? You're closer than you think. A promise to hold on to from God to us. You are closer than you think. The book of Joshua is where we find ourselves the book starts with the mantle being passed from Moses, who had led God's people out of captivity, to, to Joshua, who uh, would lead the people because Moses wouldn't be able to. He would lead the people into the promised land across the Jordan River. And one of the, the, the major overarching themes of, of Joshua uh, is really an overarching theme of Scripture, and it's this. There's a massive difference between God's plan for our lives and our plan for our lives. And we see this over and over again in Joshua. And so we've called this series Sovereign Crossings, which is not only fitting for this series, but isn't that fitting for all of our lives do you recognize that there is a sovereign God who is orchestrating and ordaining the very plans of your life individually and our lives corporately? That he is working in such a way to get us where he wants us to be, but more importantly, to get us to be the people that he wants us to become. And so I'd ask you this morning, do you recognize that your story is really less about you and more about him? Have you come to realize, just like the Israelites, that, that, that God wants more for his people than just a place? It honestly really wasn't that much about the promised land. He was all about a people who were shaped by his process, 
to become the people that he wanted them to be. And that's true for our lives as well. And that's what we're after in this study through the book of Joshua. Pastor David has challenged us to see that the book of Joshua is a divine call to courage by seeing God's faithfulness as he grows his kingdom through his people. And just like God's people way back then had to grow in their courage and understanding of God's kingdom, so do we. It's a very similar calling for us. And it happens as we grow in our dependence on God, as we learn to trust his character, to trust and obey his good plans, reminding ourselves of his faithfulness. Now, before we read our passage this morning, I think it's important to remember this wasn't Joshua's first time seeing uh, Jericho. This wasn't his first time seeing the promised land. If you'll remember, it was about 40 years earlier that Joshua and a team of others were sent in to actually spy, to kind of get a look uh, at the promised land. But do you remember their report? Uh, these, these men came back and said, these cities are huge and the walls are high and the people are mighty. They're a, they're a fighting men. Sure, it's a great land, a land flowing with milk and uh, honey, but we're fearful. And what did that do? God's people began to panic. Wait, this, this surely couldn't be what you've given to us. This couldn't be your plan. But Joshua and Caleb, two of those spies, were the ones that came with a different report. Hey, we've got to trust God. We've got to trust him. And so now Joshua is likely in his 80s, and he's probably remembering that and the fear that would have welled up in him, but he's also remembering the courage that God had called him to. And I wonder if you find yourself in a similar place at times when fear just overwhelms your faith, that as you survey the landscape of your life journey, that fear just comes crashing in. If you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word this morning. We're going to tackle Joshua 6 in two sections, but here we go. Joshua 6, starting in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, and you shall do this for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. Now they did this for six days. Drop down to verse 15. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city uh, and all that was within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. 
Only Rahab the prostitute and all that are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Verse 19, but all the silver and gold and all the vessels of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the shout of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Father, this is your word for us this morning. And it's so much more than just a story. There's so much here that you have for us to see about you, your character, your nature, your faithfulness, your plan for our lives. And Father, we come to your word with open hearts. We want to hear from you. Father, would you get me out of the way so that your word can go forth? Because anytime we come to your word, God, we're seeking so much more than information. God, we desire transformation so that we can be made more into the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've grown up in church, you've likely heard this story many times over like I have. If you grew up in a time frame that I did, you can probably recall to memory Joshua fit the battle of Jericho song. If you're a little younger than me, you know the VeggieTales version of that song, and for that I apologize. And if it's stuck in your head for the rest of the day, I'm really, really sorry. Well, this is probably one of the most well-known battles, if you could call it that, maybe one of the most famous battles in uh, all of history, whether you're inside or even outside uh, of the church. And so here God's people have crossed the Jordan, they've made it into the, the promised land, yet they find themselves standing in front of one of the oldest, most fortified cities on earth at that time. Uh, the mud brick walls were so thick that, uh, and so tall that this nearly 10-acre city looked like an impregnable fortress. It's estimated that the walls of, of Jericho were uh, constructed in such a way that they were about six feet wide at the base and, and, and could span up to about 20 feet high in different places. So you could see why the Israelites thought they weren't going to make it to the promised land. They had no idea they were closer than they thought. Much like that fog that Chadwick faced, walls have a way of obscuring our view, don't they? Uh, that we are unable to, to see uh, with some of the walls that are in our lives. And now some of those walls we, we had no say in, right? Some of those walls in our lives were from our own choosing or our own making, often to insulate or protect our hearts. Regardless of whether you've built the walls or it's a wall in front of you, walls certainly keep us from being the people that God wants us to be. Now, I don't know the specific wall that you may be staring at today. These walls can be constructed of many things, sometimes substance addiction, or addiction to pornography, addiction to work, addiction to success, 
addiction to financial uh, prosperity. Or maybe you're staring at a wall that's built out of doubt or pride or stubbornness. Maybe it's a wall of failed communication or broken relationships. Could be a wall built out of prejudice or hurt or even trauma that you've experienced. And you may even today fully know and believe, Todd, the promised land, I know it's on the other side, but I can't see it. How in the world am I supposed to get there? The wall I'm staring at is so big and so tall. I've lost the faith to see. I think there's some truths we can learn from our text this morning. And the first is this, the plan is God's and he is able. And I would say, even if the plan doesn't make sense to you, it is his and he is certainly able. Now, this is the first confrontation that the people of God will encounter in their way from the wilderness into the promised land. And God is going to use this battle to set the stage uh, for how uh, the coming battles are going to take place. And what he's trying to do is to remind Israel who he is and what's actually going on any time that they gain the victory. And true to God's character, uh, this plan is always a bit unexpected, uh, maybe a little unorthodox, but yet it's certainly strategic. For God to teach his people this truth, God gives, God's people get. God is the one who gives, God's people are the one who receive. See, there's no way possible that they would ever be able to conquer the land on their own, let alone this city. They are utterly dependent on the goodness and grace of God. And so God gives them this unconventional and seemingly crazy plan. Don't invade the city. Don't attack the city. Verse 3, you shall march around the city. All the men of war going around the city once. You're going to do this for six days. And so he says, you're going to march around this city quietly. Don't say anything. For six days, and not just with your warriors, but you're going to be led by your, your pastors, if you will, and your worship leaders. No offense, Russell and the team, but when your plan is to take a fortified city, it wouldn't seem that the worship team and the pastors would be the best pick, right? <laughs> to, to lead into, now this is what we're going to do. We're going to send them around, and then on the seventh day, they're just going to lead this parade of worship. <laughs> and we're going to blow the, the horns, and you're going to strike up the band and raise a shout, and those walls are going to crumble down. Listen, if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you probably know exactly what they were feeling. <laughs> you've learned to trust God's promises because you know that's the right thing to do. But your hope is often mixed with, I'm not so sure about your timing. I don't know how this is going to play out. I'm growing a little impatient here. Or, or you've learned an awareness of God and his wisdom, his bigness, if you will, but you still have this lingering suspicion that you just might know better than him. You possess a genuine faith that he's going to come through in the end. You firmly believe that promise, 
Yet, don't you find yourself plagued with persistent questions of how he's going to do it? How is this really going to shape out in my life? Does that describe you this morning in your faith journey? Now, I would say certainly it's fair to ask God why. God, why is this your plan? But ultimately, the better question over and over again in your life won't be why, but what? God, what do you want to teach me about you? What do you want to teach me about your plan? What do you want to teach me about you and your plan in light of who I am? See, we know the rest of the story. But Joshua is staring down a city surrounded by giant walls. He doesn't see the victory in that moment. See, we're able to look back at the story from Jesus' finished work on the cross. We know Jesus does what he says he will do. But remember, Joshua and the Israelites, they're always having to look forward. They're having to look forward at God's promises and trust God's promises are going to come true. And yet Joshua, God says to Joshua and his people, trust me. Trust my character. Trust my plan. The victory has already been given to you, even though all you can see right now is the walls. And then he says, just in case you're tempted to do things your way or trust in your own strength or military prowess or might, I've got a plan for you and it's going to keep you totally dependent on me. Because how in the world could God's people take any credit for the walls of Jericho coming down with a plan like that? And how could you, how could you and I take any credit for the goodness that God has shown in our life? For the grace that he has given to us. Yet time and time again, you're going to have to answer this question. Do you believe and trust God's character and his plan for the walls that you're going to face on your journey? Do you trust God's character? Do you trust his plan when you are just staring down a giant wall? I don't know about you, but I've had many, okay, God, I give up moments in my life. Okay, God, I can't figure this out. I can't do this. Okay, I give up. And it's in those moments that I've felt his gaze towards me. And even it's hard to believe with a, with a smile and a look of compassion on his face, say, thank you. Thank you for giving up. Thank you for letting go. Thank you for being willing to trust that I've got you and I've had you all along. You can trust me. You can let go because of who I am and trust my plan. I think the second thing we see from uh, this text is that the weapon of our faith is worship. See, after being obedient to God's plan, despite their own doubts, I'm certain of, and despite what I would imagine some cheer cheering or taunting uh, from the residents of Jericho, God's people obey his plan. They're faithful to carry out what he asked for six days. And then day seven comes, and we read in verse 15 and 16, on the seventh day, they rose early. At the dawn of day, they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Uh, what seemed like this insurmountable obstacle, the walls of this city, 
came from God a plan, the people of God, which seemed crazy. I just want you to take a mundane walk around the city for a few days. And then on the last day, you're actually going to kind of strike it up and shout and worship. But yet it was received by a leader and a people who kind of went, okay. (laughs) I mean, Joshua and the people of God said at its base level, okay, we'll trust you. We'll obey this plan, even one that doesn't make sense. And so don't miss this. Your truest form of worship to God is always your obedience of God. The truest form of worship that you can always offer to God is your obedience of God. Now, I certainly don't want to discount the singing and the shouting that went into their obedience, nor do I want to discount the prayers of the priests or of the people as they marched around that city. But overarching the songs that were sung and the prayers that were prayed was just the simple obedience to do what God had asked them to do. So don't forget the greatest weapon that you and I have is worship. I've seen this true in my life over and over, especially through some of the darkest nights and some of the most desperate situations. It was when I realized I have no ability to fix this. I have no ability to change what is happening right now. But I knew this. I can create an atmosphere of worship. I can come before God with a heart of worship and you can create a space where God will inhabit your prayers and praise and do something beyond what you could ask or imagine. Listen, the moment of breakthrough came when the people of God shouted their praise of God. Jericho's walls collapsed, the troops advanced, they captured the city, they obeyed God's instructions and God proved himself faithful to his word. Again, are you staring down insurmountable walls? Do you find yourself in a storm or in a struggle, a dark night of uh, the soul, if you will? Are you needing a breakthrough from God? And I would challenge you, pick up the weapon of worship. Remember what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42. He said, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Can I give you a question to ponder this morning? What if the battles of your life are less about conquest and more about your worship? What if the battles of your life are less about your conquest of whatever that may be and more about your worship? See, faith family, my great fear for most of us is that we're kind of all in when it comes to God's plan if he'll guarantee we get what we want. Hey, we're all in, God, if you'll do exactly what we think you should do. It's the, God, I'll serve you if, and we fill in the blank. God, I'll trust you if, God, I'll go into this battle if things are going to turn out the way that I want them to. But what if God is using the battles of your life not simply so that you'll conquer, but so that you'll learn to worship, you'll learn to trust him, Remember, he's after your heart. He's after forming you and shaping you more and more into the image and likeness of his son, Jesus. And haven't you noticed that characters often form through the darkest places of our life, through the most difficult circumstances that we 
walk through. Calvin Hunt was addicted to crack cocaine. He had abandoned his family many times over and was living on the streets of New York, yet his wife never gave up on him. She was faithful to continue to pray for him. At one of his lowest times, Calvin found himself literally sleeping in a doghouse behind the crack house. And it was at that time that he actually got up and decided he would return home. When he did, he returned home to an empty house. It was there that he heard the voice of the Lord calling him. He didn't really know why. He also didn't know that his wife and kids had left earlier uh, that evening to go to a prayer meeting at the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. But yet he couldn't shake this voice. And so he got on a train and he headed towards that church. He walked into the back doors and right down the middle aisle as he heard prayers going up, Calvin, Lord, save him. Lord, bring him here. Lord, draw him into this building. That's what he's hearing as he walks down front and falls on his knees where he cried out, God, I'm tired of running from you. God, if you will, you can make me clean. And in that moment, Calvin was set free. His story became a testimony that he was able to share as he became a soloist with the Grammy Award-winning Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Pastor Mark Batterson says this so powerfully about prayer. It's always too soon to quit praying because you never know when a wall is about to fall. Do you feel that reality? It's always too soon to quit praying. Don't give up. What if the Israelites had quit marching after six days? Enough's enough. We've been going round and, and, and round. It looked hopeless by all logical standards. There's no way we're going to take this city just by walking around the city. Man, they would have missed the miracle. The miracle of God's power and his promises because they quit too soon. The weapon of your faith is worship. Don't give up on praise. Don't give up on prayer. The third thing we see is actually a warning. And it's a warning to guard against the disobedience that can lead to destruction. God's people see this incredible sight. The walls come down because of God's faithfulness. But they go inside and they remember the word of caution that would test their hearts and their obedience, verse 18, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you've devoted to them, you take any of these things and make the camp of Israel a destruction. If you take this stuff, you're going to bring trouble into the camp. All of the spoils, if you will, the gold, the silver, all of it's mine, God says. Don't touch it. It belongs to me. It's going to go into the treasury of the Lord. And so before the walls fell, Joshua instructs his people, do what God says. Don't touch anything. Set apart everything for destruction so that Israel would not be judged. Don't take anything for yourselves. See, God knew the temptation of their hearts would be to abandon their worship of him for their worship of stuff. 
to lose sight of him and and see all uh, of the things. See, it's amazing that God sees and knows the fickleness of our hearts and how quickly we'll abandon the capital G creator God, the one true only God for lowercase g gods. Over and over again, it's for this reason, one of the great reformers, John Calvin says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. After we get one, We just chase after another and another. See how amazing, God, look at this victory you have have given to us. Oh, wow, look at that shiny gold thing over there. Look at that little trinket. Wow, look at that pile of money. Look at the furniture in that house, right? No one will notice if I just take this one thing. See, don't miss the continual temptation for all of us. Shallow thinking about God always replaces God with a fraudulent idol of our choosing. And we see in this story, the whole counsel of Scripture is a continual warning that we are idol makers and we are idol takers. And that's our heart. You're an incessant worshiper. The question is always who or what are you giving your worship to? to? Are you placing your hope and trust in God and his good plan uh, for your life? Are you putting your hope and your security uh, in things? God's sovereign grace must break us of our idolatrous impulses. And I've learned in my life that after a great victory or accomplishment that the Lord may bring his way, those mountaintop moments are often met on the backside by some of the greatest temptation towards idolatry that I've ever faced. You, you meet God, you see his victory, you see his working in your life on the mountaintop, and then and on the way down, uh, the power of our flesh comes sweeping in and crashing uh, in our lives in such a way that we're prone to forget And we see this pattern over and over again in Scripture. Great success from God is often followed by intense temptation from the flesh. We've got to guard our hearts and stay vigilant with spiritual victories. That's why we all can say and we sing, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Listen, if you're going to pray and praise your way up the mountain, to see God do something victorious in your life. How much more important to stay humble on the backside and pray and praise your way back down into the valley. We've got to realize the grace of God that gave us the victory is the same grace of God that we need to sustain us in the valley. And he offers it to us. The fourth thing we see is that the victory has already been secured by God. If you'll look back to me with me to how this story started, verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. Before the plan of attack was even unfolded to Joshua, God tells him, Hey, the battle's already won. I've already secured a victory. Before you even step foot towards that city, I've got it of guaranteeing victory. Remember the question that Joshua actually asked the commander of the Lord's army at the end of chapter 5? We talked about it last week. He said, are you, are you for us or are you for those guys? 
And you remember, God says, I'm, I'm for me. <laughs> Victory is with, with, with me. Well, Paul asks a similar question, but one that's really turned into a promise for us to remember in Romans 8. Remember what he asked? If God is for us, well, who could be against us? And then he goes on to, to answer, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not graciously give us all things. What a great thing to remember. This is the promise of the gospel. This is what gives us courage. We know we're prone to forget it. That's why we gather in corporate worship so that we can press the gospel deep into our hearts and give us courage to stand before the walls that we'll face on our journeys. And again, I don't know what kind of battles you're facing in life. I know some of uh, your journey, but I certainly don't know all that you're going through, but God does. And I can't guarantee, and God doesn't guarantee in his word that whatever specific battle you're facing will turn out a specific way, but we know and trust this promise that in the ultimate battle, God has already said this to us, our battle with sin, our battle with evil, our battles with injustice, our battles with all the brokenness of this fallen world, we are guaranteed the victory. That's for us, church. Through Jesus, we are guaranteed uh, the victory. And so all of us who know Jesus this morning know where the story is headed. We know that in the end, our great Savior, Jesus, will return and his righteousness and his justice will rule and reign over a new heaven and a new earth. And in that place, he promises to wipe away every tear from our eye, that sin will be no more, that disease will be no more, that death and destruction will be no more, there will be no more suffering. And then all of us will gather around his throne from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And we, for all eternity, will worship and glorify and enjoy him forever. The battle has been won when Jesus died on the cross to rescue his people. This is the gospel, my friends. And for those of you that are longing for victory and freedom, I stand here this morning to let you know that when Jesus rose from that grave, he defeated your sin and he defeated death. And by putting your faith and trust in him and him alone, you can know that no matter what battles you face in this world, the ultimate battle has been won. And when you receive Jesus as your sovereign Lord and King, it totally transforms your perspective on the battles that you'll face in this world because you know, I can trust him. He's good for his word. I can trust his character and his promises, but you do have a choice. You can stand before your Jericho wall and tremble in fear, or you can put your hope and trust in the perfect one whose love casts out all fear. And you can trust that in the end, his justice, his righteousness, his love and mercy will reign out. But until that day, we strive to be faithful, to trust God's plan, to obey his word. And when you face insurmountable walls, pray. Pray. It was the first century B.C. and there was a devastating drought that had threatened to destroy a whole Israelite generation. The generation that was living right before Jesus' birth. 
The last of the Jewish prophets had died out nearly four centuries before. In that time period, they hadn't heard anything from the Lord. Miracles were such a distant memory that it probably seemed to the people of God like a false memory. God was nowhere to be seen or heard, or so they thought. But there was one man. He was an eccentric sage who lived outside the walls of Jerusalem, and he dared to pray anyway. And his name was Honi. But there was one man, an old sage, who lived outside the walls of Jerusalem who dared to pray anyway. His name was Honi, and even if the people could not hear God, he believed that God could still hear them. Famous for his ability to pray for rain, the people pleaded with Honi to pray for a miracle. With a six-foot staff in his hand, Honi began to turn like a math compass, 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 270 degrees, 360 degrees. He never looked up as the crowd looked on. When he was done turning, Honey stood inside the circle that he had drawn. Then he dropped to his knees and raised his hands to heaven. With the authority of the prophet Elijah who called down fire from heaven, Honey called down rain. He said, Lord of the universe, I swear before your great name that I will not move from this circle until you have shown mercy upon your children. The word sent a shudder down the spine of all who were within earshot that day. And then it happened. As his prayer ascended to the heavens, raindrops descended to the earth. The people rejoiced over each raindrop, but Honey wasn't satisfied with a sprinkle. He lifted his voice over the sounds of celebration. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain that will fill cisterns, pits, and caverns. The sprinkle turned into such a torrential downpour that the people had to flee to the Temple Mount. But Honey still wasn't satisfied. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for the rain of thy favor, blessing, and graciousness. Well, the downpour turned into a perfectly proportioned sun shower. Each raindrop, a tangible token of God's grace. Honey was almost excommunicated for his prayer because some members of the Sanhedrin believed that it was too bold. Listen, God is not offended by our bold prayers. He's offended by anything less. God honors bold prayers because bold prayers honor God. And eventually, Honey was honored for the prayer that saved a generation. It was deemed one of the most significant prayers in the history of Israel. The circle that he drew in the sand became a sacred symbol. And the legend of Honey the Circle Maker stands forever as a testament to the power of a single prayer to change the course of history. God longs to answer prayer. He has already promised victory. And sure, the walls of your life may be overshadowing your view right now. But God has given you what you need through the power of his Holy Spirit to circle those walls in worship, trusting and believing him for victory. Let's pray.